part of the, the answer to the second question. Why don't medium-sized banks like the recent California banks require similar plans? Well, the answer is because they're hard to keep up to date. Uh, imagine if every time you bought something in, in just on your own portfolio, every time you bought a share of a mutual fund, not just the mutual fund, I own this mutual fund. No, I mean, each share, you have to designate somebody to receive that. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake and Jeff McClure. And I totally didn't say our last name. I didn't say it. Well, we're out of you, practice. You're out of practice. We've been out of the loop for a couple of weeks, and as a result, you forgot how to say your last name. Sometimes that happens. I am also McClure as far as the last oh. name goes, just to, if anybody's missed that. We, we've been out of town. He's been on the East Coast. I've been in the Rockies. Um, we've just been exploring uh, the United States economy. We try to time it for summer because Texas. So, because Texas. Because Texas. Yeah. Yes. I got you. Uh, that should be enough. If you don't get that, it's really hard to give context to talk about the blazing heat of texas to someone yep. who doesn't know what it is so yes it is uh it, well on the way back yesterday as we were driving between waco and temple the thermometer reading on my vehicle said 111 degrees consistently it's just broken and it, all it could write was ones uh and it also said that up in the dallas area and i really believed it in dallas well coming back uh, from colorado um a day ago, it was in the low 70s for the high. And coming into Texas and watching it climb up to 109, 110 as we're driving along was horrible. And then we had this rainstorm come over us and hit us. And I haven't watched a thermometer drop that quickly. I don't think ever. Um, it dropped about 35 degrees in, in about two minutes just watching mm. it drop. So it was fantastic. And so this is how we come back from our rest. We just begin by talking about the weather because... you Wait a minute. You said you had a what storm? Uh, yeah, I know. That was weird. It was in Texas. We had a rainstorm in Texas. A what? It just what is that word again? It, rain. It, it's where rain. Somebody, is that like the, when a king is in charge of everything? No, it's like when they leave the sprinklers on, only the sprinklers shoot from a long ways away. It's weird. The water comes out of the sky. Um, wow. Yeah. That really happens? Yes. Not in Texas, evidently, or not at least in our part of Texas, but uh, yes. So we, uh, we have experienced weather other than heat. We should be ready to talk about economics other than interest rates. No, no, that's oh. what we're, we're still going to, we're still going to talk about that. Sorry. No, no, can't go away from that. So let's give the disclosures before we go any farther. Um, first off, uh, first disclosure is we talk about the weather sometimes. I know, but we're not meteorologists, not even close. We just talk, oh, sure is, he, sure is hot out there, isn't it? So we do like to state the obvious because we're economists. That's what we do. We just state the obvious very vaguely. So that's the second 
Uh, disclosure, we will vaguely state the obvious and then act like we're very proud of ourselves when people recognize and say, hey, look, it's obvious. And we say, yes, we saw it too. <laughs> um, this is the Personal Wealth Coach, which not coincidentally is not just the name of the program and the podcast, but also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm. Now, that's not coincidental. The program, the radio program, predates the firm as far as investment advice and so on. It's been around a long time. These two bald guys with beards talking a long, long time. But just because the firm is registered with the SEC doesn't mean that they approve, give any kind of a attaboy gal, any kind of pronoun you want to throw in there uh, to anyone because they don't do that. I know I realize that's very rude. They don't even um, acknowledge and give a thumbs up to anyone, but that's their job. They're a regulator. So they require everyone who mentions that they're registered with the SEC to speak, state clearly that the SEC is not endorsing them. Um, and I think that's rather ludicrous. Anybody thinks that the SEC endorses anything is out of their minds. But <clears throat> okay, so we've said that. Secondarily, just because it's an investment advisory firm doesn't mean we can do that on the air. Well, why not? Why not give good investment advice on the air? This is what people want, right? They want to give good investment. Well, investment advice is different for different people. Um, there's rules for privacy. There's rules for understanding whether or not it's a good idea for a specific person to do a specific thing. Those rules are pretty important. Uh, so we can't do that on the air except to say, buy low, sell high. There you go. Um, don't get involved in a land war in Asia. Oh, wait, that's not investment stuff. Maybe it is. I don't know. It's military investment. Uh, so uh, we can't give investment advice. This, this program is educational in nature. Hopefully we're teaching you something besides just being more confusing. Maybe. Um, we're striving. Uh, I've pulled something the other day, striving so hard to, yes. Um, the uh, We're not paying for this radio program. I know, it's weird. It's a Saturday morning, you turn on AM radio, you change station to station, and you're going to hear paid commercial advertisement. We've been, for some still unknown reason, we've been doing this for 25, 26 years. Mm -hmm. 26 years. 26 years, gainfully unemployed, talking to masses of people. Um, why? Well, we think it's important that people get educated on this. I wish I had heard a radio program like ours, but I probably, if I had, I probably would have changed the channel. Uh, so I, we're endorsing that if you wish. Okay, so you have the last disclosure, maybe the most important disclosure, but you can tell because it's in monotone, high speed, and legalese. So get ready. Here it comes. The information presented on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said statements. However, we do guarantee and warranty that any information we do not give has been ungiven by us. Mm. Guaranteed. Yep. Right. Um, we have a question from Inquisitor John, and it's sort of on topic. Yeah. Um, it's pretty much what we've just been talking about. Yeah. So Inquisitor John, our most faithful questioner. He questions us about everything, um, including our um, our fashion. Uh, we're, we're not as apt in that area as we are in the economic field. I, I know, isn't that a surprise to everyone? Okay. Uh, John says, a big bank 
bankruptcy plans, which has a bit of alliteration to it, just to begin with. Um, the The concept here is that big, big banks, according to the Dodd-Frank Act that happened after the global financial crisis, the two guys that helped lead us into it also helped lead us out of it, or at least want to take credit for the second one and not the first, um, created this law that basically said, if you're a big bank, we need to know that if you fail, you can that we can sell your assets to other banks without having to spend a bunch of taxpayer money to do it, which, if you ask me, sounds like a pretty good idea. So the big question is, why didn't the medium-sized banks have to go through that? And his question at the beginning is, what would a plan for a mega bank like JP Morgan look like? So this concept, and in banking, it's kind of called a living will, which is a dumb name for it because that's not what living wills are. <laughs> a will is a will. It's not a living will. It's a will. Um, anyway, that's, that's just me being pedantic again. Though why feet have anything to do with pedanticness? Anyway, let's just jump. That was way pedantic, double pedantic. Um, the what? What would a big bank like J.P. Morgan look like if it were going under? Well, first off, J.P. Morgan is really two banks. This is weird because Glass Steagall said it's two banks. This is an act that was done in nineteen thirty-three. Um, so. Come forward, you, you, we, we removed a big chunk of that uh, prior to the global financial crisis. And a, an investment bank, which are banks that help companies issue bonds and issue stocks, and a commercial bank, which are banks that give mortgages and take your deposits and you do debit cards and checking and all that stuff with. Okay. The, in, in the 1930s, we said, nope, we can't have that. You guys are got to be separated all the commercial banks were investing in the stock market and they took their deposits. So magnify what happened with SVB and First Republic by a lot. They took their owners' deposits, their, their customers' deposits and invested in really risky stocks. So we had this horrible collapse that took place, 1929, Great Depression. So Glass-Steagall came out and said, hey, we, we can't have banks that are commercial banks being the same banks that are investment banks. You guys need to get out of each other's way. Get away. So come forward, and we repealed a big chunk of that law in 2006. And we said, okay, you guys can own each other again. So one of the largest commercial banks and one of the largest investment banks started courting each other. There were flowers, there were chocolates, there was romantic music, and J.P. Morgan and Chase came together. And there was a lot of confusion at the beginning as to which bank's name would be kept by the other nuptial partner. And it's been sort of uh, kind of coming out over this as recently as now to just be J.P. Morgan. Even though Chase still exists, J.P. Morgan is what people talk. Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan, the Chase part's seeming to fall off. Um, so anyway, J.P. Morgan would have to look at selling the investment part of its banking and the commercial side of its banking, and it's a lot. They have an entire group of people, large group of people, dedicated to keeping this will, as they call it, a living will active. When they acquire um, 
assets, they also have to figure out who they would sell those assets to because they have to have a, hey, in the event of my untimely demise, these people should buy this stuff at this price. Otherwise, you get a fire sale auction and the shareholders don't get anything. Shareholders. These banks are owned by people. And in SVB, when it collapsed, we had a, a, a like a two-person auction uh, where the FDIC and the Federal Reserve auctioned off the assets to like, what's your bid on this? Okay, that's the only bid. There you go. You can have it. When the underlying value of the assets, these are bonds that are worth a lot of money. They're just down in the market today. If you wait till, the, till they mature, you get a much larger amount of money. Well, these banks that stepped in and bought those assets made a huge amount of money. Who lost the money? Because the customers got their money back. FDIC protected everybody. This large amount of money was made by the buyer. Who lost the money? Somebody lost money here. If somebody made a bunch of money by buying somebody's stuff, somebody had to sell it. Who did it? Well, it was the shareholders of the bank. They don't like that. So they have these wills that say, hey, we have an agreement with those nine banks out there to buy this asset or this group of assets. And those documents, if they were printed out, which they're not, they're not printed out, by the way, as crazy as that sound, were actually electronic enough that I don't think the living will of J.P. Morgan Chase has ever actually been printed on paper. Um, I it might, be, I would, might have been, but that would have failed rooms. When, you, when you're dealing with the government, if you've ever looked up a bill that's been passed by Congress, you discover that it is on paper. Now, they take they do a PDF of the paper, but they first put it on paper. <laughs> Somebody printed it out and then scanned it. <laughs> Where, where's the waste in government? It's not in government. It's what they require us to do elsewhere, mm-hmm. which is part of the, the answer to the second question. Why don't medium-sized banks like the recent California banks require similar plans? Well, the answer is because they're hard to keep up to date. Uh, imagine if every time you bought something in in just on your own portfolio, every time you bought a share of a mutual fund, not just the mutual fund, I own this mutual fund. No, I mean, each share, you have to designate somebody to receive that. I mean, you can do it relatively easily. Just say, my, my kids are going to get it. Well, would your kids buy it from your estate? Probably, maybe, no. I don't know. They would have to sell it. for. So this is the deal. This is why it's it's hard. And it's hard for medium-sized banks to keep up with that. They would basically have to go into some kind of agreement with the large banks. So in a very lovingly titled the EGRR CPA of 2018. We love that that name. Isn't it great? Uh, We make fun of all the acronyms that Congress makes for their laws, but sometimes they don't make them. And we're like, what are we supposed to call this? Economic Growth Recovery Regulatory Relief and Consumer Protection Act. That's more than a mouthful. You can't really get that out. But 2018, the same law that changed when stress tests, when the Federal Reserve and the FDIC could kind of breathe loudly through their nose over the shoulder of the banks and say, show us all this stuff. Tell us what would happen in this event. Um, They changed the number uh, for the amount of assets in hand that the bank had to have from 50 billion to 250 billion to get those stress tests. 
part of the stress test is though is that living will that we've been talking about. If you don't have fifty billion dollars in assets, it's really hard to afford the time and the constant set of negotiations with other banks to keep that thing up to date and accurate. You could have just a universal, hey, that bank over there will buy all our stuff. But that bank over there needs to be a really big bank now because what if they're going through problems at the same time, which is why the Federal Reserve wants a bunch of banks involved in these living wills. And this bank shall receive this and that bank shall receive that and so on. So it's hard. Uh, It's really also hard to look back at what happened at SVB and First Republic and say, oh, that was good for the economy. Um, so there, this, this is my essential non-answer to your question, John, about why they're not recovered and why they're not required to do the living will type thing. Um, regulations on banks are necessary. Over-regulation on banks is extremely destructive. So what's the right amount? Don't know. Um, I, I tell you what, though, the next disaster, I'll say we should have done better there. <laughs> well, that's how we regulate. That's how the world regulates, because you never know what disaster is gonna happen next, and you try I, to regulate the ones that have happened a lot. Go ahead. There's 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 a fundamental driving factor in whether the federal government steps in and when they want to put special restrictions because they might have to step in. And it boils down to if a bank is, in the words of, they come out of Washington, systemically critical. In other words, it's big enough or for whatever reason. Too big to fail. Its, it's failure would potentially put the entire system at risk. There's a lot of dominoes. Then, if the first dominoes fall and don't hit any others, that's great. But if the domino is big enough, it's going to hit a example, lot of dominoes. Go ahead. If, if a local bank in Killeen, I don't know that there are any local banks in Killeen anymore, but Union State used to be an example. I don't know if they're still there. Were to fail, would it be a systemic problem? No, because it's the damage would be there. The shareholders would hurt. Uh, the Union State wouldn't pay back some of its creditors if it had creditors, but it would be okay. Now, if, on the other hand, you have a multi-state bank and the multi-state bank has got loans has borrowed money from other banks or other systems. And when it fails, it effectively saying, we're not paying you back. And that causes those other banks to fail. And not pay you other banks back. So what's happening is the FDIC and the Comptroller of the Currency and the Federal Reserve put their heads together and said, well, because of, among other things, Twitter or whatever it's called now. It's not called, is it called X now? I it think is it's called, called X now, yes. Because of X and other similar programs. The social network formerly known as Twitter. This is... Uh, we are now the knights who say icky, 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 icky. Sorry, go ahead. Icky, 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 X. We'll bang, wow. X. Yes. So if they're, they're now taking a look at the fact that a mid-sized bank that, is, that is, has the capability of causing a major financial disruption in the United States. So what they're looking at is if you're capable of causing a major economic dislocation in the United States, you're going to need to hold bigger reserves to try to hit off bank runs. runs. And, and one of the things that economists don't like to talk about, bankers don't like to talk about, we don't even like to talk about it, but I think it's important to understand Banks operate on faith. And just as uh, in a fireside chat in 1934, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt explained, 
And if you see It's a Wonderful Life, you'll recognize it's this is from there. The money that you put in the bank and they're paying you interest on is not held in a vault. It's loaned out. And they can't usually call those loans, which means that if everybody shows up and wants their money bank back, the bank has got to shut down. Alternatively, if the bank doesn't shut down, we could do what has happened on a few occasions. The Federal Reserve show up with just a whole lot of money. Or, or we could and, do what used to happen a thousand years ago on two hundreds years ago, and that would just be lynch the bankers and burn down the bank. There you are. We've decided that's not an effective way of it's getting your money back. Yeah. All right. So, so the issue is that all banks anywhere operate on a faith system. And that's you have faith in the system that you won't lose your money, which is what FDIC insurance is all about. Once you get above FDIC insurance, believe it or not, folks, your money is at risk. If the bank fails, you may not get anything. You may not get more than $250,000 back. That's the reality, I think, that we have had a tendency to forget about. And that's where the danger comes in. And if a bank is big enough that if it fails, it's liable to communicate, it's, it's, it's contagious to where we'll go to other financial institutions, then the Fed, the FDIC, and the Treasury and everybody else, the comptroller of the currency, are saying you're going to have to hold bigger reserves than small banks. So they're just shuffling it down to the midsize thing. By the way, this is ironic. The Dodd-Frank bill would have included the banks that failed in California yes. and Silicon Valley. Yeah. However. It did include it. But the Economic Growth Regulatory Relief and Consumer Protection Act of 2018 said, no, nah, it's okay. You guys go, go have fun. And from a political point of view, it is that was under President Trump and a Republican-dominated Congress, which, you know, more free market, less the, the more profit for banks. And we're not necessarily saying it was a bad decision. This is weird. Even though banks mm -hmm. failed doing this, we have to look at when is regulation too much. And we have seen a lot of middle-sized banks just disappear in the last decade. We don't yep. want that. And we want middle-sized banks. It's it's a hard call. It's a hard thing to say where should the cutoff be where things are systemically and, uh, important. Right. And when critical. I say when I say disappear, they got purchased by other banks. Um, you have probably got a lot to talk about. I have been blabbering on over here. I'm, I'm enjoying listening to you, but, uh, going, going across the economy, we continue to see a lot of activity and a lot of construction going on. We're in a really healthy economy. That's something that's hard to get your mind around. I realize that. In fact, one of the things that I find that people are profoundly unaware of is the the fact that the United States of America is such a predominant economy in the world. This was in the newsletter. Um, we have a 25.5 trillion GDP last year, 25.5 trillion dollars, which is that's a lot. A, that's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot of zeros to put on there. And the United States is a population wise is just a drop in the bucket to the world, but we produce 25% of the GDP in the world. Now, in 1990, we were producing 25%. China has grown a lot. Europe has grown a lot. Everybody's grown a lot. But we have maintained the same percentage of global GDP. The second largest uh, entity out there doing that is China at 18%. Now, it's important to, to back up a step here. And let's look at the developed countries, the, the G7. Of the seven highest, biggest advanced economies in the world, the United States has 40% of the total. Not one-seventh, but 40% of the total. Uh, if we look for income per person, which is a lot more representative of what's really going on, the U.S. average is 24% higher than the Western European average. Now, that's really hard to get your mind wrapped around. 
But averages aren't critical. And the reason averages aren't critical, if you have a few people making millions of dollars and a lot of people making a few thousand dollars, the average can still be very, very high. But let's look at the uh, income per capita in the United States. We have income per capita in the United States 24% higher than the Western European average. I said that. It's 30, but that was in 1990. It's 30% higher now. If we so, compare ourselves with Japan, so since 1990, when you know all of these, when we talk about the United States, is it what it used to be, or no, we're, it's better? It's better as a proportion. Each person in the United States is making significantly more money above what they were making against the Europeans, and that was already guess, more than they were making. Let's go and look at Japan, which in our mythology is considered to be both a very affluent and very uh, stable country economically. And it is. doing wonderful. It is affluent in 19, and stable. In Japan in 1990, the GDP per capita in the United States was 17% higher in the United States than Japan. But today it's 54% higher. So we were, at, on average, each person was making 17% more than a person in Japan in 1990, mm-hmm. and now it's 54% more. Okay, now that's just the, the size of the GDP divided by the workforce. Now, let's take it a little further. How about real earnings, the median earning of a worker? In other words, 50% of the workers earn more, 50% earn less. That's far more accurate in many cases than, it's not the, an average than of, the average. Yeah, right. Yeah. And we are the fifth highest median earnings in the world. Now, if you take out Abu Dhabi and Monaco, we're number three. Uh, Abu, Dhabi, Abu Dhabi, we've talked about this in the past. The population of Abu Dhabi is significantly lower than the population of Abu Dhabi. There. How's that for oh, well, weird I'm sorry, double was, speed? You, UA, the UAE and Luxembourg are the ones that yeah. I took out of the thing. So and, the, the UAE, 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 the population of UAE that they're measuring for this are the citizens, which is about, I don't know, 8% of the people that actually live there. Yeah. The rest of the people so, are workers that came to be employed by them to do stuff. Now, we're not number one then still. Norway and Switzerland average, and I mean, the, me, the median income in Norway and Switzerland is slightly higher, about 10% higher than the United States. But think about that just a minute. We are so far ahead of the rest of the world in every aspect, uh, Norway and Switzerland being, being examples where we aren't, but then again, those are very small countries. And if we wanted to be fair, we would take some states the size of Norway and, and uh, Switzerland, and we would discover that we have states that are make you make more money than they do in Norway and Switzerland. But the important thing to recognize is that we got here to this position of being dominant in the world economically and having the highest median income, nearly the highest median income in the world by doing a couple of things. And it's really important that we keep doing them. One, allow plenty of immigration. Now, that is not a real popular thing to say, but this is what I'm, I'm going to say it anyway. The people who immigrate to the United States are not lazy. They have come a long ways. They're learning a new language. They're striving to get here. They get here and they tend to be the most productive people in the economy for about two generations. That's not just right now. It happened as far, I mean, you get all the way back to Benjamin Franklin when he was commenting on it. Yeah, same I mean, thing. if you think about all of our, uh, about the names of the great inventors of our things from Tesla to Edison to Bell to Watt to 
Jobs to mm-hmm. Musk. There's something in common about all of them. They were not born in the United States. These, these, this is important that we recognize that some of our drive is taken from new blood brought in that are just, they've been suppressed and oppressed for too long wherever they are, and they're given the freedom to do what they need to do or what to do, what whatever compels them to do this great success. They do it when they get here, and if we, we ratchet down our immigration at our own peril there. The other thing, and, and one of the issues, and we mentioned this last hour, but it's true, the population in China, which is the our closest competitor in many ways, is already falling. The average, the the per the births, live births per woman in China are now one point one. That 1. means 1.01, I think that means they are not only not replacing their population, they're over the next fifty years. Yeah. That will cut their and population it, in half. It takes two point one to maintain the si- maintain a steady state population. American born women are not having 2.1. They're having just under two. However, if we throw in the immigration that normally has occurred over the past 250 years into the United States, we continue to have a youngering, growing economy, which just, is crucial. And the just last- as a side note, I've got to throw in some personal information. I have two children. Um, we really talked about having another 0.1, mm. but you- well, we need to keep the the economy going well, but we couldn't figure out how how to have that point one baby, so we just stopped. You have a cat. There, we've got multiple cats. Yes, that. Well, that, does that, that, that qualify as point one? one? I think, yeah. Okay. So, so they're not what, very productive. They don't do the anything other thing worthwhile is, for the economy. That immigration is driving is one of the things driving our productivity. Uh, people who come here tend to work really long hours, really, really hard, and they increase productivity in the United States. People who've been here many, many, many generations have a tendency to decrease productivity in the United States. They work, they're working fewer hours and they're retiring, which is not odd. Which leads to the third thing that causes the American economy to be so powerful, so strong, and so deep. And that is the ease with which a person can start a business in the United States. This is the easiest country in the world, the most business, small business friendly country in the world. You don't have to have a special license to go into business for yourself. Uh, you, If you're going to hire people, you do have to have a number so that you can pay the taxes or, and you can forward their taxes to the government. But there's very little paperwork. You don't have to have approval. All you have to do is say, hey, I want to start a business and I realize I have to pay taxes, so I need an employer ID number. And you can start a business in the United States. Which is, by the way, what immigrants typically do. They start new businesses in the United States, and then they start to hiring people, and they keep going. So our productivity, our population size, our two, and the third thing is the ease with which businesses are started, appear to be the keys to keeping our economy outgrowing the rest of the world. And let's be very cautious when we go against any of those. Very cool. And we're about out of time for this hour. Uh, We are going to be back next hour. There's more to talk about what's going on in the energy world, why we're having the disruptions that we're having at the gas station and so on. Uh, It's good stuff. Lots lots to talk about on that subject. But we kind of have a hard break. So if you'd like to talk to us off the air, we actually do investment advice for real people uh, and portfolio management. If you'd like to talk to us uh, there are, we have voicemail on the weekends, real live people during the week. You can call us locally at 
254-947-1111. Or toll free 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com, where you can see our made for radio faces, sign up for our newsletter, read our newsletter. If you don't like signing up for things, you can download our radio programs going back a long ways. Get our podcasts wherever you get podcasts. You can contact us through the contact form or email us directly at jeff at tpwc.com and jake at tpwc.com.